Alrighty, welcome back to The Ferment everyone. I'm here with John Graham Brown for a little bit of a special episode today on Tarango. How are you, John? Well, thanks, Andrew. That's good. And we've just finished the CEO's address. Exciting to hear from Bruno about what's happening in the export market. Yes, it's very, it really is very exciting, isn't it? He seems to be opening lots of doors for us. And from 18 months in the making, but we're sort of starting to see now is some real absolute benefits of some hard grind over 18 months. Yes, and it's, it's great to hear too that there's a residual, residual brand value in places like Europe and UK mm. who had to walk away from it for the global financial crisis. So. But the brand yeah. still stays strong, still and, strong so and, and resonates. Yeah, and doors are more or less open. So, yeah, yeah. Well, very exciting. Mm. And, and which sort of leads us to our, our podcast. But before we get to that, how have you been? What I haven't sort of seen you around too much lately. What's oh, been well. happening in John G. Brown world? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been keeping well, fortunately, and uh, but I haven't been coming to the office much. Uh, I don't want to be a, a, a vector for COVID in case I happen to bring it here without knowing I had it and anything like that. So I've kept out of the office, and, and anyway, most people, other people, keep out of the office too. So there's not much <laughs> point in coming here. Yeah, that's it. Well, I, I, I'll have to remember that excuse for not coming into the office. <laughs> I don't want to be a vector for COVID. Yeah. I like it very good. Well, especially at vintage time, I didn't want yeah. didn't want to be a vector for vintage. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, most vintages I find myself over there, you know, at least two or three times a week. Mm. You know, it's 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 annoying because you just don't get the updates like you, you used yeah. to, but we've just got to do the right thing. If the wine's not there, we're going to be in all sorts of trouble. So, Absolutely, yeah. So we've got to protect the most important asset we have. Yeah. <laughs> now, John, uh, any trips? What have you been up to lately? You and June going away? How's it been? Uh, we are planning to go away, uh, but that's been a bit disrupted, actually. We had a tree fall on our house, as you would know, and yes. <laughs> and just yesterday I got the, uh, the information from the prospective builder who suggests that he's going to be doing the building exactly the time we were planning to be away. And uh. I'm not sure they want to be away from home while all that's going on, particularly as I go to really remote places where there isn't tele- much telephone communication and, and I don't want to be where I can't answer questions. So, so it's all a bit up in the air for the winter. You've done well to get a builder. Yes, <laughs> it's a well, bit of a challenging it, time at the moment. It's already been a bit delayed. It's, it's the 1st of February is when the windstorm came through and it's only just now that, that uh, the insurance company has found a builder to do the job for us. So. Yep. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a, a, a global challenge, I think, at the moment. It, it, all sort of media you hear around uh, the building industry, the supply chain issues yes. and actually getting staff to build all is those a real issues, challenge. Yeah. yeah, amazing. And then the builder's... Builder's contract that's being offered me, it gives him plenty of latitude in time to get the job finished because of those problems. So. Yeah. Uh, I ho- hopefully not latitude in price point, John, <laughs> too much. <laughs> well, the insurer is covering it, thankfully, so yeah. that's their problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, John, I thought we'd chat about Tarango, and it's uh, it's come about because a uh, well, one of our avid supporters of the variety for you know, 30, 35 years has been a gentleman in the Belgium market called Terrazino, and you, know, you will have met Terrazino on many occasions, and I think if you... If you opened up Terrazino, he'd probably have leaves of Brown Brothers <laughs> as part of his uh, anatomy. It's yeah. uh, he's a very passionate man, great and supporter, great supporter, and just you know when we were sort of having troubles with the grape variety Tarango, he wouldn't let us let it go, mm-hmm. uh, and thankfully things have sort of come full circle, and the Belgian market has rode with Tarango all the way through that and it looks like we're, we're going to be getting some strong support um, in that UK market that you just spoke about. So very, very exciting. So yes. we thought we'd have this chat. But yeah. he put a, a Facebook post out saying that Tarango turned 60 years old and that sounded a little bit old 
to me and so I went to you and said does that sound old to you John and and it did so we thought why not sit down and do a bit of a podcast on the ferment about Tarango and get it the the factual story of the history of Tarango. Yes excellent. I want to check with you John how was it that you happened to be in Merbeen at the CSIRO and talking about Tarango? Yes, well, the CSIRO was uh, given a brief to develop some new grape varieties for Australia, particularly suited to hot climates. And the idea was uh, they're looking for varieties that would grow in places like the Murray Valley that would retain their acidity well. And uh, the program was initiated in 1965, and Dr Alan Ancliffe was the scientist in charge of the project. And uh, in 1972, they crossed two varieties, Tariga and Sultana, and uh, this, this eventually became known as Tarango. But uh, when they crossed the varieties, they had up, up to 1,200 different varieties from the crosses that they made, and they needed some wine experts, of which I happen to be one, <laughs> that they invited along to a taste, several tasting sessions over a number of years. We tasted many of those wines. So some of the crosses uh, didn't even yield fruit. Some of them yielded vines that had great big long tendrils and weren't very practical for a vineyard. Uh, others made grew grapes that just weren't suited for wine. They're, they're all out of balance acid-wise. So they'd already so- sorted quite a few out, which left uh, a whole day's tasting for us uh, of varieties that we had to try and sort through and find something that we thought might be commercially viable. There were about five or six of us from the industry and the, the CSR had chosen tasters who were uh, from innovative companies, companies who pushed the boundaries a bit. So that's how I came to be there. And I think it was from about 1975 to 1978, or during that period I was involved in those tasting sessions. But Tarango was, was crossbred in 1972. In 1975, the CSIRO dedicated it for release and gave it a name. Mm. So uh, for all of our marketing team out there, 50-year <laughs> reunion yeah. this year. So you know, that could be a, a nice little spin on yes. the, on the uh, re-release of Tarango, yes. uh, which, would be, which would be fantastic. Do, do you recall your first, the word Tarango coming into your space? What, what, was, yeah. what was your first recollection of that it, varietal name? It came to light while we were doing these tasting sessions. I think probably in the second or the third session I was involved in, up until that time, all the wines we were tasting were just known by a plot number. They were just nameless wines, if you like. Yep. And uh, then there were four four varieties that popped out in the end that, that might turn out to be useful, and Tarango was one of them. Uh, and, and that was brought to our attention during these tasting sessions. Mm. And there were three others too. There was a variety called Corinna, which was made into wine, but actually it was like a currant. It was a very, very small berry grape was like the current that they used to dry. Mm-hmm. And then there was uh, Tominga, which is a cross between Tremina and Farina, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was Goira too, which was a, a Gordo Sultana cross, which was which didn't work out very well in commercial. It, it had poor acid and coarse flavours eventually. Now, I'm going back into some of my sort of crazy history recollections in my mind. Have we got... Did we actually release a couple of those other ones as well? Yes, we did. We, we made some and bottled them. They went nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> well, you got so they disappeared. Not, not everything can work, John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and we were only growing them in hot climates too, and we, we never got to explore growing them in cold climates. So there's maybe still potential for those varieties. 
if, if somebody had the time to trial them. They don't really have the the, the name ring of Tarango, I don't no. think, <laughs> but uh, interesting one nonetheless. And what appealed to you about the variety John Tarango? Well, at the time, we had rapidly growing sales of flagon wines and wines that we sold in bulk containers for home bottlers particularly, and uh, we were using varieties like Shiraz and Carignan and Cinso and Mataro. Those wines really needed freshening up with something. We thought, my dad believed that we should be looking to make lighter red-style wines. And when I saw this wine on the bench in the CSIR rooms, I thought, well, maybe this will work for us. And they described it as being a heavy-producing variety that's really suited to hot climates and it was held its acidity well. Uh, so I, I got quite interested in exploring that one. So that the, the ears perked up very yeah, quickly? Yeah, so I, I thought it had real potential. And so eventually uh, we were the first ones to be offered the vine cuttings from the CSIRO vineyard to plant out in a commercial planting. So we were given the first grapes that, were, that left the CSIRO vineyards in 1978 where I had the chance to play with about a tonne and a half of it to see what we could do with it. The, you've answered my next question. So when was the first... Tarango made at Brown Brothers, so you're saying 78 was your first chance to have a play around? Yes, 78 was the first one, and the CSIR actually delivered it free of charge <laughs> on their own <laughs> truck, a tonne and a half. Yep. <laughs> and so that was the, the first vintage. It turned out to be rather lighter than I expected. Uh, I hadn't. That was my first practice at making a Tarango, so I probably didn't leave it on the skins long enough to get a bit more colour out of it, and it was a little bit disappointing to me. However, it did have those really nice fruity, strawberry, raspberry aromas and flavours. And uh, we bottled a little bit of it and put a little bit through the tasting room in the cellar door to just see how it went. And uh, the rest of it was blended away into the cask wine, mm-hmm. the bulk wine. It wasn't actually cask wine at that stage. It was mostly flagons and, and 25-litre plastic containers. And I've probably jumped the, the gun a little bit here. The, the cuttings that were offered to Brown Brothers, where did they go in? Well, they went to Mystic Park. We knew there was for a hot climate and we already had some space at Mystic Park and uh, so Peter planted them for us. So they, and they grew very strongly. It's a, it's a very vigorous variety and they really came out of the ground at 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and and, and the, first, the first crop that we received from that vineyard was in 1979 and it was really overcropped because we, we hadn't learned how to manage the cropping levels. And again, the wine was a bit light and, and didn't have the, the fullness that I would be looking for. Uh, so it, it finished up with a no-name going into flag and wine too. All my recollections of our first vintage was that our first commercial release was 1980. It was indeed. Yep. And that was entirely from our own grapes from Mystic Park Vineyard. We must have had about five or six tonnes of them. And we bottled something over 6,000 bottles from that vintage. I was starting to get my hands, hands around how to make it properly and, and uh, it gave a bit more time on skins to get a bit more extraction from it. But it turned out to be a really nice, light, fruity-style red and, uh, and we decided it was worth bottling some of it instead of putting it all into flag and wine. Uh, there, was, there was excess for all the years subsequent to that for for bottle purposes, so it still kept contributing to our flag and wine volume. Yeah, it really interests me. Like I've, I've trawled back through all of the tasting notes going back to 1980 that I could find, and we haven't really wavered on that lighter, fresher sort of style, release young style all the way through it. Did you ever sort of think about 
trying to make something a little bit fuller or a little bit richer or some time in oak or anything like that or was it just always something that you felt that it was suited to that lighter style? The type of the grape doesn't allow to make a rich tannic full red style. It just just doesn't have the characters. You can only make a light style of wine with it. It's a bit like a Gamay from France and the Beaujolais style. It just it just had, doesn't have the capacity to make a full red. You sort of mentioned it before, but the the idea of a lighter, fruitier style of red wine that, that your, your father John Charles was talking about that would have been pretty unusual around that time frame. Was there a lot of light red wines out there? What what's your sort of recollection? Well, my recollection is that there wasn't weren't many, mm. and but in hindsight, it was about the term and turn of the tide when people were starting to get more interested in the lighter style red rather than the big alcoholic tannic extracted reds, mm-hmm. uh, which Australians did like up until that time. It was probably a bit fortuitous that we put Tarango in at that time. and It, it did give our bulk wines, our flagon wines, a lift. It lifted them out of that sort of ordinary Murray Valley low acid type red and gave it, gave it quite, a, quite a lift. Yeah, so the whole, the whole concept at the outset was, was to, for it to be a flagon wine, but when we got to make it, we found it made rather a nice light fruity style red too yeah mm. and would have really complemented the range to yeah. have you know a, 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 that lighter red in the mix of yeah. something there that's unusual and certainly gave us uh, more of those credentials of being the varietal specialists and, and absolutely and, yeah, and, yeah and experimenting with unusual things interestingly my brother peter who had convinced to plant the vines at mystic park when he actually tasted the product in 1978 and 79 he says you will never sell this stuff. It's a waste of time. <laughs> it, it, it didn't gel with Peter's palate. No, thank goodness Ross was in marketing, not yes. Peter. Yeah. <laughs> or Durango yes, may yeah. have never been. Absolutely. <laughs> now, John, in those early years and reading through the tasting notes, in 1983 we start mentioning the Dukey Agricultural College and the supply of fruit coming from them. What's your recollection of that? Coming on stream yeah, at the Dukey College, there, there was a, a fellow there who was very interested in wine, very yeah, very interested in wine and interested in doing wine differently. A fellow named Peter Hayes, and uh, he he thought it might be a good idea if they planted some in their vineyard. They'd already planted Sauvignon Blanc, and uh, and he came to me and said, "John, do you think some Tarango would be a good idea?" Well, I, I was a bit hesitant because I wondered whether it'd get ripe in this climate. Yeah, I knew it would would need a really warm climate to get there. Anyway, they did go ahead and plant some and uh, we continued to take their fruit when it came into production. I was just talking to Sean a little bit earlier today about, you know, have we knocked on the door of the Dukey Agricultural College to see if they've still got Tarango in the ground and he seemed to think that they didn't have it anymore but I had a group from Melbourne Uni that come through um, that are associated with the Dukey Ag- Agricultural College and they come through every year to do a look at a winery do some tastings have a chat to us about you know what Brown Brothers is all about and I, I've got this recollection that they were saying that that week they had harvested the Tarango and were talking about the big, huge bunches. So fingers crossed there's still some on the vine there that we might be able to get hold of mm, um, while, while we're trying to grow our, uh, our stocks at Mystic Park. Yes, it might well be available. And for our listeners that are not familiar with the Dukey area, it's sort of on the way from here to Shepparton, isn't it, John? Mm, it's between Benalla and Shepparton yeah. on that and main road, or just off the main road. Yeah. It's a pretty dry area there, which I guess is probably why Tarango was 
able to grow and get ripe in that area. Yeah, it's fairly dry and it's got really rich volcanic soil too. They produced heavy crops there. They had to manage the cropping pretty heavily. Yeah, I, I, I remember <laughs> I remember when I was, because like, I studied there when I was doing okay. my course and, and we had to pick the Tarango one day and I okay. said to the I said to the, uh, the, the teacher, I said, uh, geez, you wouldn't want to be paying by the bucket. <laughs> with Tarango, like almost two bunches fill yeah. the whole bucket. Yeah, they're huge bunches, aren't huge they? Huge bunches, yeah. amazing. Now, John, during the 80s, Brown Brothers was growing, like as a company, was growing incredibly quickly. You know, yes. you've spoken about, you know, around the 30, 33% growth per year. Was Tarango showing the same sort of growth in that time as well? It was fairly slow to take off in the bottled wine, but, but we were getting increasing yields from the plantings at Mystic Park Vineyard and the surplus was just going into flagon wine but but we really needed the flagon wine too because we, we were getting terrific growth there and I, I think it took a little while really for Tarango to get out there and for people to recognise it for what it was mm. it wasn't really until the 90s that it really started to take off um, so in the 80s it was really just getting it out there getting it established and getting people used to its name and also used to the idea of drinking a lighter red which which Australians weren't accustomed to much. And I guess probably why the export markets became so important, where they had access to things like Beaujolais that yes. you know wasn't hugely popular here in Australia, but they knew lighter wine styles over there and, and something like Tarango could slip in quite nicely to that mix. Yes, it's much more readily received over there. Mm, no, definitely. Now, John, in 88, you relinquished your winemaking duties to go into a CEO role. How did you manage that, uh, that process and was it hard to drag yourself away from the winery? It was a very big transition for me. Yes, I... I really hadn't prepared myself for it, so it was quite a shock to the system and, and I had to stop dragging hoses and washing barrels and <laughs> sit behind a desk and wondering what to do next. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I think probably the time was right. Um, I'd been making wine for 30 years and I'd pretty much used up all my innovation. I, th- I felt I was, I'd used up most of my innovation and the younger winemakers I was starting to employ to cope with the workload were coming out with a higher level of education in the sciences of, of wine and, and they were innovative and energetic young people. So although I was reticent to step away from the winery, the wine's just got better, <laughs> and, and that put my mind very much at ease. Yep. Meanwhile, I got on with understanding how to run a business and, and, try and sort about taking that to the next stage. It would have been a tough transition, but to know that the, the wine was in good hands and you could, you could set your mind at ease on that space, you know, then I'm sure once you started to really focus on the CEO's role, it would have just ballooned and got huge on you very, very quickly. Yes, it took, took my whole life, my whole mind at the time, and I was pleased. Well, I, I had to leave the winery behind because I didn't have time to spend time with it. In any case, they didn't need me there. So. <laughs> now, John, you know, talking about these innovations and the new breed of winemakers coming through, in the early nineties, we started to utilise carbonic maceration with the uh, with the Tarango. Do you want to just talk us a little bit through your recollections of that um, process and 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 how that came to be? So I, I didn't have hands on on the carbonic maceration because that happened after I left the winery area. Mm-hmm. But carbonic maceration is just a, a process where you allow the grapes to ferment without breaking the skins. It's normally done in a whole bunch situation. Uh, we, we were doing it uh, in the grape bins that the grapes are harvested into and uh, they're just covered with a plastic cover to keep 
carbon dioxide in because a little bit of fermentation takes place in the bit of juice that's at the bottom. It's just natural wild yeast that causes the fermentation. And that causes the whole bin to be shrouded in carbon dioxide and the skin cells then die and release their contents much more readily so you get more colour and flavour out of the skins. And it also alters the, the, the flavour of the whole ferment. Uh, partway through the ferment, when perhaps half the sugar is consumed up, uh, then the grapes are crushed in the normal way and uh, the final ferment is done without the stalks and it enriches the wine very much, makes it a much more complex product. And I think probably that was the next big step to making our, our Tarango product more popular. My vintages in the winery were 2000 and 2001, I think, or it might have been 0102, and I remember hundreds of bins out in the receival area with hand-picked Tarango in them and putting the plastic cover over the top and we would duct tape it Yes. Um, so that no air could uh, get in mm. and, the, and the CO2 would stay in board. Mm. And then there was a tiny little hole in this plastic lid that you would force in um, nitrogen or CO2 into this tiny little hole and then seal that up and into the heat room for the carbonic maceration yes. ferment and just to help it along. Yes. And uh, But when you opened up these bins, the aroma that came out was so lifted yes, and, and well, overpowering yeah, almost absolutely yes. and yes. the best way i can describe it and john you you don't strike me as a person to chew a lot of chewing gum but uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, the 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 way i describe it is like that strawberry hubba bubba chewing gum yes a real lifted strawberry confectionery yes. um, sort of character yeah, it really brings out that a strawberry flavour, mm. yes. Yeah, no, just just amazing and, and, yeah. and what a, a revelation that would have been to the complexity that you spoke about yes. but also the flavour of Tarango in that uh, that time frame. Yeah, and when you talk about two, the year 2000, 2001 too, that's when we are really hitting our straps in, in the export markets. So. Mm. <laughs> well, I, you, you sort of uh, mentioned the, the sort of quantities we were getting up to uh, just before we started. John, do you want to let our listeners in yes, about that? I think we topped over a million bottles of sales into the United Kingdom for a little while there, just before the global financial crisis. At that time, uh, the exchange rates changed so much that we couldn't sell wine profitably in the UK anymore, so we had to walk away from that market. Absolutely. I mean, huge, a million bottles. Like, there's probably... Now there's only like Moscato and I think Siena might be close. Prosecco would be getting close yeah. as well. Mm. So it's it's quite incredible that it was getting yes. to those numbers. It would just would have been a huge part of yeah, our it was, business. It was a big part of our business. Mm. Yeah. Well, that maybe maybe that uh, explains why there were so many of those carbonic maceration bins that I was absolutely <laughs> yeah. taping up and, and getting. It's getting much more laborious way of making wine, but yeah. it, but it works. Now we've just spoken about the UK market and that time frame so do, do you recall the wine going in there and the excitement around it and that growth? In the early stages the growth was fairly steady it, it didn't grow quickly and I think Ross and his team over there had to work pretty hard to get it established uh, competing with the Beaujolais which uh, which were well known and recognised in the UK and this product from Australia people were a bit tentative about uh, but it gradually, gradually it caught on but I really think that when the carbonic maceration process started in the early 90s, that, that that's really what caused it to kick off and grow really rapidly and become really some something of prominence for us. My recollection pre-global financial crisis was there was a 
absolute love of Tarango around the UK market and it was one of those varieties that transcended the stigma of a wine being in the supermarkets and then also on restaurant lists and also in independent wine retail. There's very few wines in that very competitive market that could transcend those different channels yeah, and do okay. it so well. Yes. So yeah, amazing, amazing wine style and so exciting to think that we're gone full circle and <laughs> it'll be back in. Yeah, we'd love to be back in a position where we can grow that market again mm. and uh, that'll mean planting some more Tarango, no doubt, to, yeah. <laughs> to bring up the supply. Been, <laughs> the supply has been dwindling in recent years because of the lack of sales. Well, it's, it's quite a sad thing if you think, you know, a million bottles... Uh, you know, pre-global financial crisis to, I think it's about four and a half hectares or something like that uh, that's planted over at Misty Park now, which is, you know, a a shadow of what it used Mm. to be. So fingers crossed, John, we're on the the onwards and upwards with Tarango and that people will love it as much as they did previously and we'll see that success again. Yes, and there'll be some excitement in the vineyards too about being able to plant something that some new areas and get it all up and running again. We haven't done much of that in recent times. All right, John, well, thank you so much for your uh, recollections on Tarango. I think that'll paint a fantastic picture for our, our teams of the history of Tarango and how it came about for us. It's been very entertaining and I've learned a lot over this last little session. Thanks, Andrew. It's nice to be recording it. How good was that, everyone? If you have any feedback for us at The Ferment, please send us an email, theferment at brownfwg.com.au. Also, don't forget to check out our Tasting Note podcast. Thanks for listening to The Ferment, everyone. Stay safe out there, chase hard, look out for each other.